welcome to episode 34 of Tall Poppy. I'm your host, Tathra Street. My guest today is Sally Anderson. She has a vision of global empowerment and unprecedented authenticity in humanity. Her second book, The Co-Creative Age, is described as a code book to hack the future and evolve leadership. Through her experience of extreme trauma, intense suffering, and getting to her own healing through all manner of personal development, therapy, coaching, and healing modalities, not only was she able to see what happened to her as a spiritual guide, but she took the best of what she learned in her own path to healing, identified what was missing, and created her own very powerful and remarkably effective education that will bring her vision to reality. It's unconventional and evokes fear in the defenders of the status quo, but her commitment and passion shines through. She's up against not only entrenched institutions, but our own belief systems that keep us stuck in tolerating suffering. You may not resonate with everything she says or even how she says it, and that's okay. I invite you to be open, curious about what could be possible if we evolve leadership in the way she describes. I'd like to welcome Sally Anderson to Tall Poppy. Welcome, Sally. Thank you very much for the privilege of talking to your people today. So let's start with where in the world are you? So I'm based in the Bay of Plenty in New Zealand, and uh, it's <laughs> a bit biased, but I believe it's uh, one of the most beautiful parts of New Zealand. And just out from my window, I'm looking at um, White Island, which is uh, a volcanic island here in New Zealand. And um, we have the best summers in the whole of New Zealand, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to be based here, commute from here, we commute from here a hell of a lot. Um, but from a lifestyle perspective, that's where we're based. And when you're commuting, are you commuting to Auckland, to you know other parts of the world? What, what does commuting look like for you? Great. So uh, we have every intention to go global with what we do. Uh, we have uh, had exposure throughout the United States. Uh, we launched in Australia in 2015. Primarily, we're focusing on New Zealand at this point. Uh, you know, pre-profile, one thing, post-profile, another. So our focus for 2017 is to raise profile uh, to quite a large degree. Our intention is to land a TED Talk in either London or New York this year to be able to uh, have our message be heard by those that need to hear it um, so that we can gain uh, far more uh, international exposure. Fantastic. So let's get into it. What What is your work about and what's important to you about it in terms of what you do? So the label that we put on the education that I've developed is called awareness-based training. So uh, our focus, we are the first global leadership service provider focusing on sustainable transformation, both personally and professionally. And what does that mean? So my background is in belief behavioral cultural change at a very large level. I witnessed millions of dollars being spent on change programs. And don't get me wrong, I loved what I did corporately. Uh, however, uh, it was questionable, the return on investment. Uh, we, our byline is, uh, we believe that if you're going to invest money into change, let's make sure it's sustainable. There's a lot of money being invested in, in change, and I think a lot of it is very, um, coming at, an, a, a, I guess, a templated tick box approach. It's like, yep, yeah, we've done that, therefore it should happen, rather than a real understanding of what behavior and change actually looks like, hey? Very much so. So in the context of what's expended, you know, on training, on workshops, on coaches, on consultants, obviously, as a cultural change agent, you audit uh, the efficiency and the return on investment to the said organization. And in, in some cases, it's in the millions. And um, 
I became concerned because obviously I don't like associating myself with anything that's not um, sustainable. Uh, so I was really interested in this elusive thing called sustainability. Most leaders have done every traditional leadership program on the market. They've done pretty much, um, you know, they've they've reached a level of unconscious competency with their subject matter expertise. They've done the Anthony Robbins, the landmarks, the avatars, um, but for whatever reason, they haven't experienced the level of transformation that they've wanted, nor have they known how to sustain it. Off the back of my personal uh, journey, I did 30 years of being a course junkie, name a CD, a course, uh, a book. I read it, listened to it, and been to it, and I also struggled to sustain the change, so that's when my focus became, uh, it wasn't part of my intention to create my own education, but that's what happened. Uh, so so what do you think was missing from all the courses that you mm. did? Because, I mean, I've, I've done a good chunk of those as well, and perhaps not as many as you have, but, um, yeah, what, what do you think was missing? Really good question. So moment by moment by moment, we're in one of two states as a human being. There's certain things that just come with the human territory. We're either in an empowered state one minute or a disempowered state the next. You can be mm. as highly trained as you like. I dare say uh, your listeners know of many people who are highly trained, but it's questionable whether they've reached the level of transformation that they uh, invested into or knew how to yeah. sustain it. Mm. So Absolutely. through the inquiry of my own personal journey, as well as what I experienced corporately, I distinguished that there is a thing that I term a default blueprint or a default identity. If we are a human being, which every single organization on the planet have human beings in it, novel concept, certain things <laughs> in human territory. So if each individual has what I term a default identity, you continue to default into your disempowered state. Um, there's uniqueness, and it always stems from childhood, which I find fascinating when you're facilitating a conversation with a CEO, fish stinks from the head down. Um, when they say, Sally, why are you coming to see me about my company and you're talking to me about my childhood? Hmm. Well, um, from about the age of three to five, your default forms. Uh, that then forms the behaviors. Uh, you adopt all of your belief and your um, values from your parents, your environment, your siblings, your mm -hmm. upbringing. Uh, your schooling, that then forms the structures you put in life, that then forms the uh, culture, that then forms the results. So if we are to entertain, which is the basis of our education, what is unique about your particular blueprint, that impacts the ability of in, a, in an organization um, to have a cultural default blueprint. Now, if people aren't aware of that, they don't know um, that that is the thing that's impinging them being able to sustain the change. So part of awareness-based training is being able to facilitate them becoming aware of the default mechanisms, which always stem from childhood. There's a lot of little boys, little girls running businesses. There's a lot of little boys, little girls running relationships. Um, yeah, right. Wow. So we're one of the few organizations globally that are advocates for executive teams, because I only work with CEOs and executive level personally. Um, at that level, um, we're advocates for healing and coaching together to get full reintegration. Healing in isolation isn't sustainable. Coaching in isolation isn't sustainable. The two together, very formidable. Um, so so what's not the receptiveness like? Because like, I can imagine, I mean, like you said, we pretty much exist from, from the neck up for the most part. And so I'm wondering, and especially at the CEO level, what's the receptiveness to these kinds of ideas? Like, are, are they able to sort of get it cognitively but resist on another level? Or what, what are you seeing there? Yeah. So I recently uh, published my second book, which is the leadership book called The Co-Creative Age, The Next Evolutionary Phase in Leadership. If we are not changing the evolution of the consciousness of those who lead, we're impacting future generations that aren't even born yet. 
And if mm. leaders are only evolving their consciousness to the realm of what's traditional, which is in the known realm, uh, the co-creative age is being able to uh, tap into who you are in your human form is limited, who you are in your co-creative form is limitless. Uh, co-creation is a term that I use, that I get away with in the corporate context. Who you are um, as a human being, as a creative being, tapping into the co-creative realm. So that could be higher power, universal force, collective consciousness, God, depending on what your belief structure is. So the co-creative okay. age was written focusing on the two missing elements in every organization in the world because they're focused, you know, because there are human beings that certain things that come with the human territory, and that is faith and that is love. Why is it such a foreign concept to have love in the context of business? And B, when you think about faith, it's normally collapsed into religion, which is why people don't look at it. No disrespect to those who are religious. Uh, most people who are religious aren't even walking their talk with reference to the degree of fear that they harbor. So I am a spiritual teacher. Spirituality to me is about um, trusting the unknown realm as much as you trust the known. We were born uh, intuitive, we were born fearless, and we were born connected, and then we forgot. So how do you bring leaders back to that state? Um, and especially where cultural change is concerned, there's three, uh, three areas where that is concerned. First area is cultural change. They don't want to go anywhere near it because it's all too hard. Second area yeah. is uh, they're in the middle of their cultural change. They're expending a lot of money and it's not working. Or they're in the third category where they've expended all the money. Uh, it's questionable whether they've got a return on their investment and they're at the end of the spectrum. Uh, sadly, that is in the global research that I've done, the three areas that uh, fit where cultural change is concerned. There's a difference between power-power-based cultures and what I term default-default-based cultures. Um, as in, somebody's triggered, they're disempowered, they trigger somebody else, they're disempowered, they are in a default-default-based engagement, and it never works, versus a power-power-based engagement. How do you create power-based cultures, and knowing how to sustain it is part of what we focus on. In terms of power, do you think people are using the term in a way that is about power over rather than empowerment or power with? That's a really good question. <laughs> I believe there's two contexts to everything. There's the empowered context and the disempowered context. Mm -hmm. So I don't talk about positive and negative. That's normally thought structures. I talk nice. about empowerment and disempowerment because to sustain anything, you need to shift people experientially. So I'm talking about the empowered aspect of power. Fantastic. The disempowered aspect of power. Mm -hmm. Likewise with ego. Um, ego gets a bad rap, but you need to be empowered yeah. with your ego to be a leader. And can I just say for a second, with ego, I, I totally agree. I, I think it's been um, demonized and I don't, think that, I don't think that's helpful. I know for a fact that the only reason that I'm doing this podcast is because of my ego. If I, if I didn't have a, an empowered relationship with it, there's no way this would have happened. That's right. I came to go back to that idea of, of how receptive people are to this. Like, I love your concepts. I, I, I'm very aligned with, which is why I was very drawn to uh, the idea of interviewing you. My experience in the corporate world and with corporate leaders and, and just, you know, the business world in general is yes, they're human beings. And yes, they're probably at the end of their rope and have done all of these different courses and, and self-development and leadership development and change and culture and all that sort of thing. But my, my sense of it is that they are terrified to go into this space of whether it's, you know, dealing with power in an empowered way or, or being able to really look at themselves. So, so what are you, what are you noticing when you're, when you're working with people? How are you able to move people beyond that? fear into being able to to really face this tough stuff 
So I'm not the first pioneer on the planet. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, you know, most pioneers have had to infiltrate traditional thinking, uh, which is why our focus is that ability to be able to raise profile. Uh, if you have more people buying into the concept in positions of authority, then you will be, you know, um, endorsed and there'll be more testimonials. So we're actually looking at a PhD being done on this education so that we can prove it to the academics. Okay. So coming into our next training, who, um, fingers crossed, um, we're very close to having that PhD signed off. And obviously, if we were able to pull off the TED Talk, we realised that um, uh, any early adopter with reference to this education um, is really, I mean, although the education's been tried and proven for the last 15 years, it's new in the traditional space. And so how how is it being received? There are people who really get it, um, but then they're answerable to a board structure. And so the catch-22 is that if the board hasn't had exposure to this education, then obviously the ability to be able to have it signed off is questionable. So we are in that phase of uh, pre-tipping, uh, and the receptivity of those that come in and experience it. So normally we are advocates for, say, the senior HR director or somebody from the executive team to come and actually come into one of the public forums, experience it. They know what their culture is like. They have that cathartic awakening. They can see the possibility. They then go back into the organisation and be the stand for the education and possibility within their organisation. That being said, obviously, with us tipping profile, it will assist the cause on a much wider scale because part of our point of difference is that we can't... If, a, if an organisation wishes to send 10 people to the course, we can't accept them, which is a real point of difference. The individuals would need to um, hear it for themselves they would have to part pay, so they need to have some investment themselves, otherwise the program won't work. So that's a really yeah, that makes sense. proposition for a company. So is that a barrier for some organizations? That, you know, if, if someone's keen and they're like, you know, we want to send our executive team, how, how, do you, how do you deal with that? So it is a barrier in the sense that part of the reason why we changed the branding to Evolve Leadership, uh, Evolve by Choice, it's a choice whether you wish to evolve. Uh, I've been involved with cultural change for the last 30 years, and the missing for me is where the CEO says to you, Sally, can you just come in and fix my people? I go, well, um, no. Like <laughs> if it were only that easy. Yeah, it's not about fixing your people. It's about changing your mindset. Now to changing your mindset, by osmosis, it changes the people. So it's been a, a stern call that we've made as part of our branding, as part of our our stand for executive communities to understand that the fish does stink from the head down and that... Uh, it's important that the CEO experiences it and then obviously is the stand and the advocate for the work to go further. Uh, our intention in this uh, coming year is to land two power-power-based cultural change initiatives um, within two set organisations and actually case study it in conjunction with this PhD that we want to sign off. Fantastic. So let's take a step back. What inspired you to, to do this work? I mean, clearly you've had a lot of experience in the corporate world, but are, are there also personal things that, that, you know, what you saw in the world or experienced yourself that had you go, right, there's something something wrong here, something I need to change, something, a better world is possible. What, what, yeah. what came from your own <laughs> Very life much that? Um, everybody has a story. Uh, your story is your story. My story is my story. Nobody has the right to compare stories. However, I do believe in what I term um, people having a very powerful life apprenticeship, which I have had. Uh, I was um, brought up in a phenomenal family. My father was a guidance counselor in the schooling system. He was an only child. He wanted to give his kids uh, experiences he never had. 
So I was born in New Zealand and then we moved to Canada. We lived there for four years, came back. Ah, I did were you in the east or west of Canada? Vancouver, uh, oh, okay. Braylon, um, moved around a bit over there. Um, so mostly BC? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I lived in BC for 25 oh, years. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he decided to bring us back to New Zealand and um, so pretty much from the age of six, seven um, brought up in New Zealand, learnt to ski in Whistler Mountain, so joined the local ski fields. Got my oh, yeah. first job at the age of 15, hiring out skis at a local uh, ski resort. And everybody in the early early 80s used to hitchhike, so I was a bit rebellious, so decided to hitchhike into the local township. And it was a defining moment in my life. Uh, in New Zealand, there's a gang called the Mongrel Mob. Uh, we went into the local bar. I always look older than what I was. Um, it was one of the worst reported gang rapes in the history of New Zealand in the early 80s. Um, oh, wow. I was abducted and gang raped by more than 100 Mongrel Mob members. Oh, my God. died in that experience. Um, 12 hours wow. of abuse on a butcher's block um, from every oh orifice. Uh, I literally died on the block. Uh, nobody survives an experience like that, but I did. Wow. Um, been abducted and taken to the Mongrel Mob hangout in uh, a local township um, uh, from that location. Um, my parents, even though, I mean, what do you say to your daughter? Um, and in the oh. early 80s, there was no support for the victim. So go back to school. Oh, wow. So I pretty oh. much lived out of 25 years of the most dysfunctional behavior, every addiction known to man, um, self-loathing, self-hatred, um, worst inner critic on the planet, 24-7 high volume, couldn't turn it off. I integrally understand what I term the default identity because I lived to that extreme yeah. for over two Jeez. decades. Suicidal maniac for two decades. Uh, the only reason why I didn't commit suicide was that my brother had died when he was 23 and I couldn't put my parents through another death. Wow. So I have an integral understanding of dysfunction, <laughs> which was mm. part of my apprenticeship. I can now look at the mongrel mob as my spiritual initiators for what I do today. When you've gone, the co gone beyond the comprehension of human terror and come back of your own accord, you learn a few things that aren't written in the textbooks of old. So um, let, me just, let me just pause you there for a moment because I... I completely understand the concept of being able to see adversarial experiences and in your case, you know, far beyond that as, you know, being able to integrate that into our, our journey. But I think it might be worth just unpacking that a little bit to, you know, how you, you went from, you know, this experience, absolutely, you know, horrific um, to, to being able to see the value that that experience in terms of how it created who you are today. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, my style of coaching is called um, causal coaching versus symptomatic coaching, intuitive coaching. So my gift is the ability to uh, do what I term live coaching, throw anything at me, any place, anytime, anywhere, on anything. Um, the ability to channel the coaching process and teaching leaders on how to access that ability. To be able to have reached that, I... Obviously, through the amount of courses that I did, I uh, learned the key distinction, which is choice. I didn't realize mm. I had a choice on how to respond, a choice on what yeah. I felt, a choice on nice. what I could mm -hmm. do. Which I, I, did not, I had no concept of that because my reality was the dysfunction that I was creating, but I didn't realize that that was a function of my stinking thinking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we read all these personal development books that say, be careful what you think, your thoughts create your reality, and they do. So part of um, living into that dysfunction uh, one of the courses that I did, often people ask me, what was the defining moment? When did things change for you? And I did a course where I was on stage, suicidal yet again, and a course leader called me a victim. 
which I didn't like because I thought victim meant weakness. When he made the distinction that victim meant powerless to change the situation, it was like a ticker tape parade across every entire area of my life. And I didn't realize, or I did in that moment, that I was the cause of my own dysfunction. I had a two, three day event. I added the 25 years. I became a worse perpetrator than the mongrel mob. So in 15 years of live coaching, what I've learned is that it's never about the happening, it's what you do with the happening, because all of human suffering is a function of what we make things mean. Yeah. And the meaning that I had added and then constructed to find evidence for was what created my reality, when I realized that you're the one who has a choice on what you make things mean. And that's where the healing comes in, that if you have not done the healing, your past will always be in your future. So the ability to be able to teach people that healing is an integral part of full reintegration. That So I'm going to pause you there again for a moment because I think I've done the same course that you're talking about. Um, and, but my experience is that healing wasn't really a part of it. The emotional element wasn't as much of a, um, a that was missing for me in my experience. So I, I'm curious if if there was something similar in yours or did you, if as far as the learning you got from that experience, was there additional things that you added down the track or was it was it that sort of pinnacle moment um so i was intending uh in that work which is based on ontology the study of what it is to be human yep. uh to um, werner Erhardt, is that right correct um yep. the two key things that were missing in that work from my perspective you can be as highly trained in distinction-based training as you like um but one uh was the questionable ability around how to sustain it um, and for yeah. me, that's where the healing came in. And two mm. was the spiritual component that yes. if you don't trust the unknown, regardless of how highly trained you are, you're not going to trust because evidence-based people are waiting for evidence to show up before they trust. Trust-based people know the reward is evidence if they trust. So the mm. exploration that I, I chose to leave, I was contemplating being one of their key leaders. Um, I ended up going out with one of their advanced course leaders who told me oh, yeah. experience far more outside of that curriculum than in it. Mm. Um, at that point, I left, and that's when I decided to um, go on the journey. It's an excellent starting point, though, being able to look at it from an ontological perspective, though, yep. isn't it? I mean, for me, that was, I mean, I had done a fair bit of personal development before that, but that was definitely catapulted me into the next level to be able to allow me to explore my own, you know, yeah, what it is that you get beyond that kind of work. But definitely, I mean, I'm alive because of the ontological teachings, hands down, but it did not give me the sustainability aspect. And mm. that for me, was um, what precipitated me going and, and designing my own education to complement mm. um, key teachings of what's already in place. So I want to go back to what enabled you to move from being a victim to being able to see the mongrel mob as what, how did you refer to it as your, uh, spiritual your initiators? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, in 15 years of live coaching, the point I wanted to make was that You'd think that people who who have experienced extreme trauma would be more dysfunctional than those that haven't. Um, what I've witnessed is that those that have experienced next to nothing are more dysfunctional than those that are warranted, and that fascinates the hell out of me. That, for me, yep. proved that it's not about the happening, it's about what you do with the happening. And I read something recently, well, a little while back, about how the, the distinction in terms of children who experience trauma, the, those that grow up to be successful compared to those that don't, and the distinction was how they related to the trauma. If it was just, you know, that's just what happened and, and I've moved on, or this was a growing experience for me um, compared to those who stayed in that uh, disempowered state, I suppose. 
the thing that I've learnt from both from my own experience and those that I've had the privilege to coach is the dysfunction until you can get to a point and realise that it's the best thing that ever happened to you, which is complete reverse psychology. Yeah. Um, you can't take your power back from it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I had a situation with um, an 11 year old boy that's not my target market, but he had been abused um, sexually by his best friend for a four year period. And the mother had encouraged this 11-year-old boy to go and play with his uh, friend. She blamed mm. herself. Uh, she approached me. One hour on a Skype call, I was able to, instead of meeting that kid at 21, 31, 41 or 51 in one of my programs, was able to oh, wow. stop him in his tracks and actually turn that situation around to be the best thing he'd ever experienced and that he could actually make a difference for any other boy. I mean, you should see that kid now. He's now 15. He's in his. He's the pre, uh, he's the head of his um, rugby team. Completely turned his life around through one hour uh, conversation with myself. I, I I am able to shift people out of their dysfunction in a very fast fashion. My processes are quite unorthodox, but they get results, which is why part of um, the agreement and a lot of the work that I do is that you do not divulge what actually happens on the programs because it's private and confidential to those that are on the journey. Well, people just won't get it if they if they haven't have an experience or don't have the context. Yeah, so it's the privacy and the confidentiality of the alchemical nature and the magic that occurs is in the privacy and confidentiality um, of those that are in that dual experience. Um, mm. I do live. I've done live coaching with psychiatrists about when they back out. I go in. I am a fearless practitioner, which is why I'm wanting this education in the hands of those working with the human condition. I have every intention of having this education transform the way counselling and psychotherapy is done because at a level, the dysfunctional aspect of counselling or psychotherapy actually keeps the default at play because they psychoanalyse it instead of disappear it. Yeah, I've I've changed my opinion about that in the in the last while as, as well, just as far as, I mean, I, I think there is value in how it is, but I also know that when I'm looking at my own journey that the time, as valuable as it was that I spent in, in counselling and, and in therapy, it uh, continued to it, it it didn't take me past it it didn't it, it gave me an opportunity for healing but it didn't allow the healing to happen by going over it and over in it yeah, yeah so we, we're aligned with certain healers that complement the work that we do mm. um, so we have a strong alliance partner and after every program that we run we're, we are advocates that they hook into the healing intuitively um, to whatever modality works for them we have a cross section of modalities that they can um, entertain to complement the w- work that we do it's amazing. So it sounds like you've got a big vision for the future of humanity. Can you tell me a little bit about what the world will look like once your vision has been realized? So the key focus um, from our perspective, I have a 20-year vision, a bit bigger than Ben Hur. <laughs> Sally Anderson trying to pull that off. Uh, not possible. Sally Anderson co-creatively get out of my way. Uh, <laughs> So we're wanting to bring a level of unprecedented authenticity into the personal professional development movement. There's too much looking good coaching, looking good consultancy going on. Uh, every certified coach, we have a base of 20. So I'm just going to pause you again. When when you say looking good, I know what you mean, but those who may not have that the context of that, that terminology, can you say what you mean by looking good coaching? Sure. Um, where you preach to your client to do something that you're unwilling to do yourself. Right, that takes it to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah, so you're looking good in front of the client, yet you're not walking what you preach. So we have a base of 20 evolved certified coaches currently moving to 35 by the end of the year to 45 um, by May of 2018. I know that when this thing tips, we need enough coaches on the ground to be able to fulfill on the demand. 
given our intention is global. Uh, it takes a good two to three years to become proficient in the style of education. Um, so from our perspective, uh, every coach is up-leveled every four months. Uh, once they're certified, um, there is stringent... Um, I peer review every single session of every single coach. Uh, we don't let anybody loose on anybody. Um, so although coaching is a non-regulated industry, we apply regulatory industry standards of supervisory capacity wow. to the coaching that is administered. Um, and they they know that, um, like all the courses that I run, the coaches and myself are in the program as much as the participant, um, which obviously leverages a high level of authenticity to the participants who are in every program that we run. So I'm going to um, pull up that one again. So you said you, you're wanting to see an unprecedented level of authenticity and humanity. So what difference is that going to make? What, what will the world look like? What will people experience? Well, I believe um, off the back of the 20-year vision that I have that um, love and faith are the two key things that are missing, um, specifically where leadership is concerned. Absolutely. Um, and because this education is awareness-based, training-based, uh, there's certain things that just come with the human territory. In every organization on the planet, it has human beings in it. Um, I think it's sad that love is a as a key strategy, faith is a key strategy within business, and I'm able to... Uh, facilitate conversations with the executive and or corporate community to laymanize um, whatever their relationship with faith is. Uh, I believe that, um, you know, we're supposed to be the most intellectual race on the planet, yet we're still killing each other. Um, you know, But I wonder if that intellect is quite isolated. So the way I look at it is that currently we are very focused on cerebral intelligence, whereas our emotional intelligence, our intuitive intelligence, our somatic intelligence, spiritual intelligence, all of that isn't well regarded, it isn't acknowledged. And I wonder if that were integrated more, if things might be a bit different. What do you think? Well, that's where faith and love come in, uh, because I believe that, you know, we've got the emotional intelligence and spiritual intelligence are uh, palatable. Um, but when you go to holistic intelligence or alchemical intelligence, that's well beyond the human form, uh, is where we where we hang out. Um, I call it one to three dimensional thinking, which is when you're still living in that lower level of consciousness in the realm of meaning. When you're in the fourth, fifth and beyond dimension, you are going into realms that are far beyond the ability for consciousness to be able to deal with. So in both of my books, I talk about a thing called culturalization, where at the moment, consciousness only shifts uh, through adversity. And given that I had an event yeah. uh, when I was 15, I then created another good three decades of, because I was a survivor, I had to create crisis to survive, crisis to survive. Um, right. I've lived a life of extreme adversity, which I believe is part of my contract in this lifetime. Um, I believe I've reached the level of equanimity, the ability of being self-actualized to be able to pay forward what I've learned. Um, and be able to raise consciousness um, through the leadership realm, through love and faith, because those are the two access points to emotions that are critically needed for the evolution of the human race. So um, I want to get into that vision space again a little bit. Like I hear you talking a bit about the how and sort of how it is now, but I'm curious about what difference this is going to make. What, when your vision is realized, what will life be like? Uh, we launched a youth foundation uh, recently which is the philanthropic arm of Evolve Leadership and Sally Anderson International. Uh, we will eventually tithe and offer scholarships to those programs. 
Uh, in New Zealand, we have the highest rate of teen suicide. Our mission is social change and eradicating teen suicide. We believe that we've found the answer to stopping people hurting permanently. And wow. I'm, I'm a threat to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, the weight loss industry, for example, is a uh, trillion-dollar industry not interested in sustainable solutions. So to have a non-drug-related solution, um, I have a sense of urgency to reach as many people as possible. My frustration is the ability to reach the market, knowing that the, there are so many people suffering and hurting out there that um, don't need to be. One of the chapters in my first book is that I don't believe in depression. I've partnered many people off depression drugs in a sustainable way. And my interest is to ensure that, um, that, you know, the overarching vision is that we impact future generations that aren't even born yet by awakening people to what their legacy is. Legacy for me is one of the most profound conversations you can facilitate with a human being on the planet. What are you doing here? What is your DNA calling you to be in the world? So in the context of... Um, this education being in the hands of those working with the human condition, be it coaches, doctors, um, counselors, psychiatrists, um, you know, anybody working with the human condition, um, you you can't facilitate somebody else's default behaviour unless you have an integral understanding of your own. Um, so the ability to be able to pull off a TED talk, where um, uh, and obviously this PhD in conjunction, to be able to uh, be heard by those that need to hear it. Um, you know, we need to be endorsed because uh, I'm very clear, although we've been tried and proven the last 15 years, uh, until we get endorsed and or accepted as something that is the norm, it's not going to be accepted on the wider forum. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm just thinking like there, there are concepts that you're talking about that I agree with and I, I get. And I think there are a lot of people out there, possibly people who are listening that are kind of not so sure, not really, um, that these might be new concepts. So would it be safe to say that the like you say you've got you know you're a threat to the uh, the pharmaceutical industry but the, are there other people who are that you would call your critics people who don't really believe in what you're doing or are, are criticizing your approach and if if so how do you deal with them I think as a leader part of your um, commitment is to stand strong to what you believe in um, I think Brene Brown uh, did it well she uh, published a video about being in the arena. Uh, yeah. that if you're not in the arena and you have an opinion on what I say, um, you're, the relevance of what it is you're saying um, is questionable. Whereas if you're willing to get into the arena and have an appreciation for what it's like to be in the arena, I might actually listen to you. Mm. So I sleep well at night. I live true to my values. Uh, I think if I had a Sally Anderson voodoo doll, um, I'd be a billionaire by now. Um, that I think part and parcel of uh, pe uh, leaders being able to sustain what it is that they are communicating, they need to leverage their co-creative ability and transcend their human form to be able to deal with the level of critics and naysayers uh, that they attract. And one of the one of the distinctions that I had to get to is um, given the degree of judgment assessment and criticism that I received as I was evolving, is that judgment equals mastery of compassion. Uh, send in everybody to judge, assess and criticize me and I will learn to master compassion for what must it be like in your shoes that you judge me to that degree when I know I'm clean, I can go to, go to bed well at night knowing that I'm living true to my values. I think that's part of uh, the ability when you do evolve as a leader uh, to be able to stand strong and be counted and know that nobody externally there's always one finger pointing out three fingers pointing back the more that somebody judges you it says more about them than it does about you 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, is there something that you wish more people knew about you? Um, I get accused of being very confrontational, very intimidating, um, very evangelistic, uh, Yeah, name a viewpoint. Uh, I prefer to reframe all of that and just say I'm a very passionate woman who's passionate about what she does because I care. You know, I fundamentally care about um, the fact that I've lived the apprenticeship that I have and feel blessed to be able to, um, I just don't love coaching, I adore it. And the ability to be able to stop people hurting permanently is a pretty profound vocation. So I think uh, for all the whys and the wherefores of people's viewpoint of the work that I do, it's not for everyone. Uh, Not everybody is ready to evolve to the highest potential. Um, I'm a very sensitive person, you know, I'm, I'm a human being like the next man. Um, however, my faith is uh, primary for uh, being able to fulfill on why why it is that I'm here. I often get asked, what is my faith? I stay away from needing a label. I just trust it implicitly. I'm in communion with it 24-7. Uh, I train people on how to live in that co-creative state. Uh, one of the analogies I use is um, using a vacuum cleaner. Not that many CEOs vacuum. Um, however, <laughs> have you ever tried to vacuum when you haven't plugged it in and turned it on? It's a bit tricky. Um, right. So that ability to be able to hook into whatever your viewpoint, you know, I've coached people from every sector of, of uh, faith, uh, be that spiritual, be that religious, be that, uh, you know, I've, I've converted many atheists. I've uh, been able to get people, whether it's the zone, the slipstream, um, I'm not attached to the terminology so long as you walk it, um, whatever it is that you do believe and be able to leverage it 24-7. Wow, great. You've talked a bit about this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What do you think it's going to take for humanity to thrive into the future? Uh, Get present to the cost of um, what we're currently tolerating. I think um, part of the reason why I wrote the latest book uh, was to provide insight. You know, obviously, as a speaker, I do a lot of international keynote speaking. Uh, I'm quite an activist speaker. I'm not a safe speaker. So I often say to the bureaus, if you want a safe speaker, don't book Sally Anderson. I believe it's a speaker's responsibility to be remembered. How many speakers have you listened to in the last two, five or 10 years? Can you remember their name and can you remember their message? Um, So I'm on a bit of a mission and um, part of being able to be heard in wider forums uh, is being able to land the cost of that there is another way, uh, Mm. that we don't have to tolerate half the things that we do tolerate. Um, Even the distinction toleration for some people is a new concept. Uh, A lot of coaches focus on goal setting and visioning and legacy and so forth, but there's an undercurrent of what we tolerate. What would your life look like if you didn't tolerate anything that wasn't working? And obviously being able to work at a leadership level with forums on just landing that distinction, uh, that in itself uh, has the ability to change the psyche of the human race as we know it. Mm, It's huge. So if you had someone coming to you who was wanting to start something, wanting to perhaps work on their own stuff so that they could create something significant in the world, start a business, write a book, or some kind of change project in their their life or business, um, but they have that the reluctance, the internal barriers, what advice would you have for them? Uh, there'd be four things that I'd recommend. I'm really big on bringing simplicity to complexity. So number one would be watching a movie called Finding Joe. Um, if they just Google Finding Joe movie, it is a brilliant uh, movie based on the hero's journey, uh, The Ninth okay. Transformation by Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Uh, I'm a true believer of Joseph Campbell's work and the journey somebody goes on when they are being called. 
And the book that I usually recommend to the um, executive community is a book called Synchronicity, The Inner Past. Of oh, I love that book. Yeah, Joseph. Yeah, I'll put, a, I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, um, because that is a good example of somebody who was called to change the thinking of Fortune 500 companies by setting up the American Leadership Forum and the being the state of leadership versus doing leadership follows the path of the hero's journey. So it's a good case study for that. So number one would be f- watching the movie Finding Joe. Two, get your head around the hero's journey because that would be the journey that you would go on from the known world to the unknown world. Definitely look at your beliefs because beliefs run everything. So uh, getting the healing on whatever your humanistic beliefs are because beliefs, if you don't deal with your beliefs, you can't confront those beliefs, you can't then transcend those beliefs and obviously get the right support. Um, There's many people who have transitioned into um, following their calling and I often say to people, you get the tap on the shoulder, you ignore it, the 4 by 2 at the back of the head, you ignore it and then you get the Mack truck that if you don't listen to what you're being called, the Mack trucks will come. And it's far easier to choose to follow the calling rather than to be forced to um, by receiving the Mack trucks that we get in life. And that life is too short, you know. Uh, why does it take your daughter dying, bankruptcy, redundancy, a cancer scare before we get that sense of urgency about our life? Uh, off the back of the life that I've led, I live my life like it is the last 24 hours and uh, train people to live to their full potential um, with a sense of urgency, you know. So if there are people who are feeling drawn to work with you to explore your book, your programs, your coaching, your um, training, what would be the first step for them? Sure. I think um, as an entree, uh, we have about 30 free videos uh, on, and I write a personal empowerment blog and a uh, leadership blog on a fortnightly basis. So there's a lot of free resource on our website. That would be the first thing, which would be evolveleadership.com.au is our website. Second would be uh, the two books that I've written. Uh, first is Freefall, Living Life Beyond the Edge. Uh, it's available on Amazon and also the website. Or The Co-Creative Age, The Next Evolutionary Phase in Leadership, both on Amazon and the website. If there's interest in the courses, uh, I believe the one-day empowerment courses that we run are like a soft entree into the deeper work. They're led by my coaches. Uh, they're held in cross-section locations in New Zealand. The work, the, my baby, I never had physical children. <laughs> the education's my baby. I run the three-day leadership uh, retreats. We have uh, interest from the UK, from the US, and from Asia at the moment. And we have those people actually coming into our next training, which is the Evolve Leadership Development Immersion Training Program. We have about 12 people who come into the education every year being trained in the education to beachhead the different operations. So we have two coming in from the U.S. into the next intake uh, who are intending to beachhead us back up into the U.S. probably 2018, 2019. All of the services are outlined on the website and would love to hear from anybody with reference to if any of the education resonates for them. Fantastic. So um, just before we finish up, is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners? Anything is possible. Um, based on your conviction that uh, I've experienced a lot of death in my life and um, the celebration of life, you know, we take life for granted. There's a lack of gratitude in the market, that ability to be able to be supported. There's there's really no reason for anybody not to achieve the highest potential in this lifetime if they believe it's possible. Um, that's all very well for me to say post uh, everything I've experienced, but that's part of the reason why I'm wanting to Uh, give people almost permission to um, stop tolerating what it is that they're tolerating 
and be mm-hmm. able to stand and be counted for what it is um, because I believe everybody's here to fulfill the legacy. And to me, the ultimate is the ability to experience equanimity in this lifetime, that ability to be the observer of what is and die to the meaning-based world um, that creates all of the suffering. Wow, fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I feel very privileged by uh, being approached and thank you very much for the opportunity. There are quite a few themes and highlights for me here. One is the ability to see trauma as a gift, drawing strength from adversity. Another is about one of the big things missing from much of the personal growth out there, sustaining the work we do on ourselves, and claiming our experience as authority. And finally, the struggle to name the vision. Let's start with the theme of sustaining the work. I appreciate that Evolve Leadership's education is not just a peak experience at a transformative education course. Personal development and therapy have limits, and how some of it's done doesn't provide lasting results. Sally says she's found a way through her experience to solve that problem. And yes, she's a threat to the status quo, and it will take a lot to unearth, but she's got the determination and certainly has the confidence and is very focused on, as she says, raising the profile of the work and wants to put an end to and even prevent what she sees as needless suffering. And though she recognizes the importance of the traumatic things that happen to us, it's what we do with it that's more important, which brings us to strength from adversity. Being able to see trauma as a gift, transcending victim and focusing on agency. What you can do with what happened to you. The article I was thinking of was by Maria Konnikova in the New Yorker on resilience and talking about a bunch of longitudinal studies that they cited. Um, One of them talks about internal locus of control and those studied who were more resilient believed that they, not their circumstances, affected their achievements. And the resilient ones saw themselves as the orchestrators of their fates. And from another study, Events are not traumatic until we experience them as traumatic. That's a quote. And of course, the links to this article and all other resources mentioned are in the show notes. And there's no doubt that what Sally experienced was horrible and arguably traumatic. And she spent years in the suffering, but she didn't stay there. And that path led her to create evolved leadership. She reframed her experience and made something of it, which brings me to my next point. This is a great example of your own experience being the authority, a foundation of your work in the world. She doesn't need a PhD to understand the impact of her trauma, her healing and the healing of others. She has experienced it all firsthand. And sure, she did a lot of personal development courses that added to her understanding, but to also identify what was missing from them. She said she's creating a PhD in the education she's developed, ultimately, so others can understand it and get their own first-hand experience. And I can't imagine that's all going to be theoretical. If you have a look at her website, evolvedleadership.com.au, you can see the impact she's had on others, notably the Maori community in New Zealand, or more respectfully known as Aotearoa. The word transformation has become watered down by overuse in both the business and self-help industry. But there's no other word to describe what she's talking about. Her work literally transforms trauma into empowerment. It reminds me a lot of Joanna Macy's despair and empowerment work. And then there's a lot of evidence to support her work. It does challenge the status quo in a big way. And she recognizes the threat her work is to an array of institutions. The thing I found challenging was that in asking her to share her vision, her answers were indirect. I know it's not easy to articulate a vision, and 
and what the world will be like when we've achieved our mission. But I think it's also the thing that will help get more people on board in advocating for our objectives. I've had a few other guests who have also struggled to dive into the outcome of their vision and the difference that their work will make. So I'm going to fill in the gaps a bit with my own vision of what impact her work will have. I think our society will be unrecognizable when her vision is realized. And what's important to us will be far more about our connections to each other. And our suffering will be short-lived. And we will transcend it quickly and glean the learning and take it into the rest of our lives. I also think that our creativity will become central, as will our ability to innovate and problem-solve. And our ability to achieve what we set out to will be dramatically different from today. The economy will shift with our values as the military is scaled right back. And helping people learn, heal and achieve becomes prioritized and funded. I could go on and one day I will. But the last thing I want to say about this interview is the impact it had on me. It was a great reminder about the role of our beliefs. And in the last few weeks, I've been more able to spot and interrupt my limiting beliefs. So if you're interested to understand more about Evolve Leadership and Sally's work, all the links are in the show notes. And if you're on iTunes, you may need to scroll down or click view full description because the links are at the bottom. So wrapping up, for those of you listening for the first time, welcome, especially the Kiwis. And Japan, you continue to amaze me. Thank you for your support. Sweden and the Netherlands as well. It's really all adding up when we're nearly at 8,000 downloads. Thank you for listening. It really means a lot. Because Tall Poppy... Well, it's about changing the paradigm of leadership and highlighting the voices that inspire change, care, and as Sally says, love and faith in humanity. For the regular listeners, specifically those who have not yet done the listener survey, this is the last time that I'll be inviting your opinion to help shape the future of the podcast. The listener survey will close on September 5th, just before the next episode. I really do want your thoughts, and it really does make a difference. If you want me to send you the link directly, just email me at poppy at tathrastreet.com. You can also connect to me via LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and please make sure you send me a note to say that you're a Tall Poppy listener, especially if it's a connection request. So my name is spelt T-A-T-H-R-A-S-T-R-E-E-T. Thanks for listening and being part of the Tall Poppy tribe, where we ask the big questions challenge the status quo, and look at our leadership differently, regardless of our role in work, business, and life. Catch you on the flip side.